Lawn Kings, headquartered in Los Angeles, California, is a synthetic grass company specializing in front and backyard transformations. Lawn Kings sells and expertly installs synthetic grass for homes, commercial buildings, sports fields, and theme parks in the Southern California area. Lawn Kings has perfected their craft over the last decade, and the majority of their business comes by way of referrals from happy customers. Lawn Kings synthetic grass is safe for kids and pets and can dramatically reduce your water bill. The grass is very low maintenance and comes with a long-term warranty. If you'd like a free estimate, head over to LawnKingsInc.com and tell them Jamie from Murderish sent you. I know the owner on a first-name basis because, well, he's my husband. My husband Steve has owned and operated Lawn Kings for the last 10 years, and he's a licensed contractor. He got his start in the business building outdoor sets for the movie industry for almost 20 years. He really knows his stuff, and he's kind of a nice guy. So head over to LawnKingsInc.com if you'd like more information or a free estimate in the Los Angeles or surrounding areas. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. You're in for a real treat today. Before I get into that, I want to take a minute to thank our newest show patrons. A big thank you to Swindled Podcast, California Dreaming Podcast, and Strictly Homicide Podcasts. I appreciate your support for the show and most of all your friendship. Guys, I'm getting really excited about CrimeCon, which is happening May 4th to May 6th in Nashville. I've connected with and built friendships with so many podcasters over the last five months, and I can't wait to meet all of them in person at CrimeCon. If anyone listening is planning to attend CrimeCon, please connect with me while you're there. I'm not going to be on Podcast Row, but I will be around every day and I'm hoping to connect with as many podcasters and listeners as I can. I really hope to see some of you there. Recently, I connected with James R. Fitzgerald, who also goes by Jim Fitz or Fitz. Many of you may already be familiar with Fitz as he played a huge role in taking down one of the most infamous serial killers of our time. Fitz is a retired FBI profiler with a specific expertise in forensic linguistics. In very basic terms, Fitz is an expert in the practice of examining language, in a letter for example, and applying his analysis to efforts toward catching criminals. It was Fitz's expertise in forensic linguistics that ultimately led to the apprehension of infamous serial killer Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. Fitz and I covered a lot of ground during our conversation and discussed everything from his most memorable cases to what led him into a career in law enforcement. We also discussed some little-known facts about Ted Kaczynski that I think you'll find very interesting. I've broken this episode into two parts since our conversation went longer than I expected, which was a pleasant surprise. Fitz is a fascinating guy whose FBI career has been nothing short of astonishing. I'm excited to bring this interview to all of you. So without further delay, let's get into it. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for taking my call. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing great for Friday the 13th. Good day, good day for an interview with a murderish podcast, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. I guess it's kind of perfect, isn't it? Well, let's make it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, so I was really, really excited to talk to you, and I've told all my listeners that I was going to be talking to none other than James R. Fitzgerald the retired FBI profiler whose work really was what led to taking down the Unabomber, whose reign of terror lasted, what, 17 years or so? 
Uh, yeah, definitely uh, over 17 years. And I was, I always like to tell people I was part of a team of uh, agents and analysts who helped bring down the Unabomber, aka Ted Kaczynski. But I am very proud of the language analysis work I did in that case. And it was really precedent setting from a legal and criminal justice perspective. So uh, yeah, it was really an honor to be on that task force. And I'm glad to, uh, all these years later, there was a mini series made about it, some books written, including my own. And I'd be glad to talk to you about the, the actual case, the miniseries, and anything you and the murderish listeners may have on their mind, Jim. <laughs> awesome. No, we'll talk about all of that, of course. You've had such a fascinating career. I've got tons of questions for you for that. So yeah, I mean, your work and obviously as well as your team in the FBI led to catching the Unabomber, and he was apprehended in 1996 in his uh, little tiny secluded cabin in the woods of Montana, right? Yeah, it's, um, the, I mean, the first profiles went out long before I was even in the FBI. The uh, John Douglas, sort of the father of profiling in the FBI, he did some early profiles. And, and uh, you know, back in the 80s of this, first it was the junkyard bomber. They didn't really have a name for him. Then eventually he became the Unabomber. And if someone out there still doesn't know what the acronym means after the series and my book, uh, it is uh, uni- uh, university and airline bombings. That's where the word Unibomb came from. Yeah, but the point is, uh, Douglas and others, and eventually when I got on board, we all knew this bomber was a loner, maybe didn't deal with people or society real well. But nobody out there, me included, thought he was living by himself in a cabin in the woods of uh, the mountains of Montana. So uh, when we finally, you know, had... Uh, uh, a certain uh, brother call and said, I think it's my brother, Ted, uh, living in the mountains. We were all a bit surprised, but really looking back and, and learning more about actual Ted Kaczynski, it really all makes sense from what we learned. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I have, of course, a lot of questions surrounding that. But I'm also interested to know, um, now, I know your full name is James R. Fitzgerald. Do you go by Jim or Fitz or what What do you go by? I've grown up with a built-in nickname all my life. Uh, luckily, it wasn't like Stumpy or Freckles or or Reds or something like that. So with a name like Fitzgerald, it's always been Fitz. That's what was popularized, of course, in the miniseries. I gave my blessing to Sam Worthington and, of course, the director and the writer of Manhunt. Yes, call me Fitz because almost everybody else does. So, yes, go and uh, call me Fitz, Jamie. Awesome. Okay. So I would like to know, where did you grow up and kind of what was your childhood like? I'll gladly answer that. And I'll just preface it by saying I've been asked that a lot of times. And I finally said about five years ago, maybe even six years ago now, it's time to write some books. <laughs> so I really walk, uh, I'm, I'm writing my memoir series in four separate books. Three have already been published. They all have the same name, A Journey to the Center of the Mind. I borrowed that from Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth and Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes in their song from 1969, Journey to the Center of the Mind. But being the linguist that I am, I put a in front of it. So there's technically no title of anything out there called A Journey to the Center of the Mind, except my three books. So to go back to your original question just now, um, I grew up in Philadelphia and that's what my first book is about. It's uh, basically from six years of age until about uh, 23 years of age when I graduated from the police academy with all kinds of adventures and anecdotes, uh, most good, a few not so good in my early life, uh, and some really great people I met, some really odd people, a future murderer that I hung out with for a while in college, never knowing 
he'd be a future murderer. But I start book one of A Journey to the Center of the Mind with my very first case ever. And that was at six years of age, I had my bike stolen from in front of my row home in the Olney neighborhood of Philadelphia. And I was so upset and I was so devastated, I launched my own investigation. And you know what, Jamie? I solved the case. No, uh, it took me three days and I did interviews in the neighborhood. I actually had a picture. My parents had a picture in a photo album. Of course, there were no copy machines back then or nothing that I had access to. And I walked around with my own little wanted poster, not of a suspect on it, but just of my bike itself. And I knocked on doors. Now we call this a neighborhood canvas in you know real life investigations. And finally, on the third day, the little old woman, Mrs. Levinson, about four doors away, said, Jimmy, I think I saw your bike over in the supermarket parking lot about three blocks away. My mother walked me over. There was the bike laying on its side in some weeds, not not high weeds, as she could see it from the street, the old woman. And I recovered my bike in one piece. Now, to this day, I haven't arrested the individuals, but I'm still looking for them. <laughs> hey, they better watch out because I heard you're pretty good at what you do. So I am. And if there was any writings involved, I think I would have caught them a long time ago. But unfortunately, <laughs> they didn't leave me any ransom letters to get my bike back. Dang it. Well, that actually leads into my next question. So was that the catalyst that drove you to want to be a cop and then eventually an FBI agent? Yeah, you know, and again, these are all good questions that I it, it really I went through sort of a, an epiphany a few years ago and looking back in every part of my life. And as I recount, you know, I think the first chapter is the stolen bike caper. Mm-hmm. And by the second or third, two things happen, I should say. Let me start with this. There's a famous case in Philadelphia, and there's been national publicity about it back like in 1957, 58, when I was just a toddler, of a case called The Boy in the Box. And it's a very sad case of a young boy about my exact age then, five or six years old, found in a box in Philadelphia, not even like in a crime, you know, a high crime area. It's kind of like almost a semi-rural area back then, but still within the city limits. And the police didn't know who he was. They knew he was murdered. Back then, they didn't really have, you know, composite artists or, you know, computer generated pictures. So they actually it was it was the cold weather when his body was found. And um, what the police did, like three or four days later, they put some makeup on the boy's face and actually took a picture of him and put it in the media back then, the newspapers and the local news on on TV and said, do you know this boy? And I remember as a young kid looking at this and I was just, what's wrong with him, mom, dad, where is, where's his mommy and daddy? And what, you know, why is he, his, are his eyes closed? And of course we know it's because it was a picture of a dead body. And, um, to this day, that case has never been solved, but I think it had some kind of an impact on me, not in a graphic or more morbid way. It's just like, who would do something like that? And my mind was, sort of, uh, you know, tickled back then in a way, like, you know, who, what kind of a bad person? My parents did their best to explain that, uh, you know, this is in my first book. I go through some of these stages and, and you know, try to explain, well, uh, maybe the parents didn't love them or how is that possible, mommy? You know, and it just didn't make sense to my little mind, but it probably implanted in me very early on that there are bad people out there that will do things for various reasons and maybe get away with them a half a century later. And and just real quick flashing ahead, I belong to the VDOC Society. That's V as in Victor, I-D-O-C-Q. They were formed about 25 years ago in Philadelphia. I should say it was formed about a quarter of a century ago based on that case. And I am now a full member of that group. We meet once a month in downtown Philadelphia 
We're basically a cold case society, and we work on cases, homicide cases from around uh, the U.S., and we try to help police investigators, even the FBI, they were in a couple uh, months ago, to solve these cases. So this boy in the box, I know he met a very unfortunate death and demise. His legacy sort of lives on in the founding of this VDOC society, which was first formed to try and help solve that case. But unfortunately, that's not uh, that hasn't happened yet. We are still positive maybe someday a guilty young mother or father from back then would come forward and say, that's my son and I'm sorry and here's why we did it. So that is part one, if you will, of an early influence I had by a crime scene. And the next thing, as I got a little bit older, my parents would talk about to them what was the crime of the century. And can you guess of a little boy in the 50s or 60s, maybe what the crime of the century would have been to my parents who were already like in their 40s? Oh, gosh, yeah. the crime of the century in the 50s. Did you say the 50s or 60s? Well, actually, it, was, it would predate. It's not fair that I'm it's, it. It could have been a number of Is cases. That the baby? Uh, um the baby that was uh, burned? You're, oh, you're close. It's huh. the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. There you go. Okay. From 1932. And of course, well before I was born. And no, I never worked the case. But they would always talk about what a fascinating case that was because they followed it in real time. And, you know, it was depression time in the U.S. And, you know, my parents were adults then. I was kind of born late in life to them. And they actually encouraged me. A book came out, I think, in 1962 called Kidnap not the Robert Louis Stevenson kidnap. And I actually, it was the first adult book I ever read. I went to my library. I think I had to get special permission to get a book out of the adult section of the library. And uh, I got it. And I was just fascinated by reading of an, you know, the early 1930s investigative techniques and methods of the mostly the New Jersey State Police. Kidnapping was not even a, an FBI offense back then. Uh, it changed shortly thereafter because J. Edgar Hoover didn't want to be left out of these big investigations after that. So I just read that, and there was actually language in that case, which probably was imprinted in my brain, because there were ransom letters left at the scene and then uh, of the actual kidnapping in Hopewell, New Jersey. And then, of course, down the line, more of them were sent through the mail to various people. And eventually, the baby was found dead on the property about six months later, perhaps from an accident, as the kidnapper was actually carrying him away. But the kidnapper still tried to keep getting money from the Lindberghs. And then eventually an individual named Bruno uh, Richard Hopman was identified, arrested, convicted, and uh, eventually put to death. So you asked me a simple question, and I kind of gave you a, a couple long-winded answers here. But really, that boy-in-the-box case from the late 50s in Philadelphia, and ironically, not too far from Philadelphia, Hopewell, New Jersey, the early 30s, uh, these are two stories I knew about. And just ever since that time, I had been interested somehow in true crime as I got older, reading newspaper versions of offenses. And again, I never wanted to see the autopsy pictures. I wasn't into graphic, you know, blood scenes or anything like that. Although, of course, later in life, I was forced to look at those, some in person. But essentially, these are the seeds that were planted in my head. And my parents always uh, advocated me reading and, uh, and you know, whatever book interests me, you know, make sure I read it and finish it. And uh, criminal justice was just kind of in my brain. And uh, that's solely what I wound up majoring in college and obviously making a career out of. Wow. No, I, I find that fascinating. And yeah, that's what I was. I don't know why I thought the Lindbergh, Lindbergh baby was burned, but maybe I'm thinking of a different case. The baby was not burned, right? No, just, uh, I think, head trauma where they think when the guy may have fell down the handmade ladder being Richard Bruno, or no, Bruno Richard Hopman, I believe. No, you know what? I was right. Richard Bruno Hopman. And they think the baby might have fallen. But of course, to keep up 
the kidnapping uh, ruse, uh, well, it still was a kidnapping, but that the baby could be somehow brought back to the family. Letters were written. And I remember they had a, I think it was an English professor back then. It wasn't even a linguist that they brought on board to analyze these letters. And they determined in an early linguistic analysis, it was a native speaker of the German language and, you know, some other personality uh, profile issues. And I just remember, wow, you can tell that from writing. And then um, lo and behold, years later, I'd become a forensic linguist myself and actually help solve a really big case known as Unibom using an individual's writing style. Absolutely. And I definitely want to get into that. That'll probably be the bulk of my questions, of course, as it usually goes with you. But actually, now that we're on the topic of you know, analyzing people's writings. I don't know if you ever read uh, the ransom note in the John, uh, the Jean Benet Ramsey <laughs> case, uh, and if you did, what maybe kind of what your initial, what what your thoughts were when you read it? Well, <laughs> yes, I've read it hundreds of times. But sorry to tell you and your listeners this, but um, there was a CBS special back in September of 2016. I was one of the experts on that show, and uh, after the fact. Mr. John Ramsey and Burke Ramsey are suing CBS and the production company and the experts. So I am uh, forbidden from speaking of that particular case. Totally respect that. Actually, <laughs> I completely forgot that that happened. I, I did watch that CBS special and we won't talk too much about it. I will just say that I thought it was very interesting and I enjoyed it uh, uh, very much. So um, totally understand that you can't comment on that. Hopefully one day you'll be able to, because I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts on that Jean Benet Ramsey letter, but we'll, we'll move past that for now. So you graduated from FBI school in what, 1988, and then uh, joined the bank robbery task force along with your, your buddy, Jim Clemente? Well, all right, you're skipping a bit, but um, <laughs> I finally went off to college and, oh, they have this new major called Law Enforcement and Corrections at Penn State. And I've always enjoyed reading about the criminal mind. So Penn State, my first job, I was a store detective in a large um, department store in downtown Philly. Uh, a year later, got hired by a suburban Philadelphia police department. And uh, I didn't really even go to college to be a police officer, but the economy, like in the mid-70s, jobs were kind of scarce, whatever. And I thought maybe being a probation or parole officer or something like that. Anyway, uh, it turned out to be 11 years. I was a patrol officer, plainclothes, detective, detective sergeant, patrol sergeant, set up in a billboard over I-95 looking for car thieves in a train station lot and did some undercover drug buys and car chases and gunplay, all that stuff. But then, as you said, uh, it was time for a change. A lot of politics. My second book is basically day one of my Ben Salem police career. And it ends with, you know, the last day of my Ben Salem police career as I'm leaving for the uh, FBI Academy the next day. And that's where book three picks up, uh, walking into the FBI Academy that uh, November 16th of 1987. And yes, one of the first people I met was a guy named Jim Clemente, a lawyer and a uh, former prosecutor in uh, the Bronx, New York. We uh, bunked, as they say, right across the dorm room from each other. and we became good friends and we still are to this day and we're still working together, although most of our work together has to do with uh, television, movies and books and things like that. But uh, we're still trying to solve some old cases, believe it or not. But, yeah, that's when it all started with our friendship with Jim Clemente. And I put that in my third book and uh, walk the reader through the first three chapters, really what it's like to be uh, an FBI agent trainee. And I know there's a show on called Quantico and it's kind of popular and it's cool and fun, but Real life, at least back in the late 80s, was a 
bit different than that uh, the present TV show, but uh, but that's okay. It still it still reflects good on the FBI, and we can use some help right about now. So okay, so that's interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm obviously I, I don't know if it's funny for for you to hear people describe themselves as fans, but I'm a huge fan of your work as well as Jim Clemente's. So and I know that you all were on the rob- bank robbery task force. And interestingly, I was actually involved in a takeover bank robbery in my career. Just, just a few years ago, I was uh, sitting at my desk and two men stormed in and one of them had a gun and he basically pointed the gun at all of the employees as well as the customers who were in the lobby. And the other guy jumped the teller line right away, took some cash. And I, you know, I, I won't go into the whole story, but it, it was absolutely terrifying. Luckily, uh, nobody got hurt. So what was one of your most memorable bank robberies uh, that you worked? Well, that's an interesting story, Jamie. And yeah, you have the vernacular down, uh, a takeover crew, we used to call them, or it could be a duo or a pair. Uh, but yeah, that's a specific kind. Some bank robbers are silent with a note. Some are silent with a gun. Others go in six people, one at the door, they go into the vault. But you obviously were two guys there. And fortunately for you, everybody just laid low, quiet. They got their money and they left. I would say the most interesting bank robbery, and back in my days in New York City, I was 88 through 95. I think I was on the task force for about four years. We would have 450 bank robberies a year. There would be some days I would go and handle bank robberies in each of the five boroughs from Staten Island to the Bronx. And as you can imagine, it's not easy getting around uh, New York City, much less all five boroughs in one day. But we had a bank robbery crew. They were a takeover crew, two of them. And um, they hit in Brooklyn and Queens for about a year straight. And, uh, you know, once a month or so. And I think they were up to several hundred thousand dollars. And this is back in, you know, 1990, I think it was. So not a small sum. And uh, we finally, they would steal a car, then use that for the getaway car. But we could never really track down their actual car. They left no fingerprints. They wore masks. Finally, somebody saw a, a weird, you know, couple guys get out, looked like they were carrying guns and bags. They took a mask off and they jumped into a regular car, dropping off a stolen car. Police went there. We got a tag on the um, on the car they drove off in. It belonged to a woman and it wasn't at the exact address where we thought it would be in Brooklyn. Finally, my partner and I found that car and we sat on it. We didn't even know we would find it at five o'clock in the afternoon. They said, sit on that car. It's been a month since these two guys hit. They're probably going to take it to steal another car and hit a bank the next day. Long story short, uh, this crew got in the car. They're driving erratically all through Brooklyn. We thought at first they're going to hit one bank. They got out, cased it, jumped back in the car, drove to another bank. For whatever reason this time, they didn't steal a car. And sure enough, we watched them get out. The SWAT team was involved. They're watching them. We went right around the corner, my partner and I. They robbed the bank. They come out. We all go to uh, you know circle and surround the car. They pull their guns up, and the SWAT team is right there, and they shot and killed both of them on the scene. Wow! The guys did pull their guns. It looks like they were going to use them. Uh, they did have you know the bank money in the car, uh, uh, and so these were the guys. No, everything was good about the arrest, so to speak. Nobody likes death or or violence in an arrest like this. But the guy raised his gun up and. Uh, the SWAT guys opened fire. I was about a block away, uh, you know, uh, speeding towards them. I was driving the car uh, with my partner on the other side. And uh, but it was all we had was smoke and uh, the smell of gunpowder by the time we pulled up there. And uh, unfortunately, two dead bodies. But uh, they never robbed the bank again, Jamie. I can tell you that.
Hey guys, I have a podcast recommendation for you. Fame and Misfortune is a celebrity-based true crime podcast hosted by two 20-something beauty industry co-workers. Aaron and Stephanie discuss Hollywood true crime cases with lots of satire and a touch of glamour. As far as topics discussed, think O.J. Simpson, Kurt Cobain, and the Kennedys. Aaron and Stephanie give weekly makeup, skin, and beauty tips, too. Bonus. If you're into murder, Hollywood, and beauty, subscribe to Fame and Misfortune Podcast and get all of it in one pretty package. Fame and Misfortune Podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and other popular podcatcher apps. Also, check out their website at fameandmisfortunepodcast.com. Wow, that's that's because, like you said, I, I've I've learned that you know most bank robberies it seems are pretty quiet. It's just a note that's passed, you know, and give me the money. They get the money and they walk out quietly. But obviously, in your career, you've seen much more than that. And I can't think of the timing at this point, but certainly you're aware of that the big bank robbery here in the L.A. area, North Hollywood, at the Bank of America, with the big shootout. I don't know what year that was or where you were at with your career at that time. Yeah, I do remember that happening. And of course, I was nowhere near it. I think I, I think it was the early 2000s. And I know it was, uh, there's a movie called Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. And there's a big bank robbery scene. And they say it sort of uh, almost mimics that scene. Um, actually, I forget whether the movie or the robbery itself came first, but they weren't too different. And it was two guys that they were surrounded by police and they just started firing fully automatic weapons. And that was a scary scenario. Luckily, Nobody was hurt or killed, or at least not seriously hurt, other than the two bank robbers themselves. So uh, the police, uh, I think it was LAPD, did a great job that day, ultimately, in taking those two uh, two guys down. Oh, that's so scary. I, I remember that one big time. So I know you were eventually promoted to the to the BAU, which is the Behavioral Analysis Unit. You were asked to go to San Francisco to work the infamous Unabomber case. And uh, how long had Unabomber been sending bombs at that point when you were sent to work the case? And again, I did seven years in New York and almost on a whim, I just applied to the profiling unit. It was the first promotion I ever put in for in the bureau and I got it. So we go down to uh, 12 weeks of training was from April to June of 95, very specific behavioral list profiling training, uh, other expert, you know, FBI people, John Douglas was just retiring kind of, and he worked the Unabomb case. I don't think either of us knew it at the time, but he sort of passed the torch to me because, as you said, I basically finished this 12-week course with fellow FBI agents at the FBI Academy, and I'm actually on vacation at the beach, and I get a phone call, and um, Jim, uh, you know about Unabom, right? I said, yeah. You know, there's a task force now in San Francisco, right? Yeah. Well, they want a profiler out there. Would you consider going? I said, okay. I said, I don't really know too much more about the case than what I've read in the media, John Douglas gave us like an hour block on it and, you know, some of the letters. Well, Jim, that's enough. So, <laughs> and I learned in the FBI when they kind of ask you to do something, they really are kind of telling you to do something. So I figured 30 days in San Francisco, I guess I can do that. Well, the 30 days turned into a total of about a year and a half. Within nine months of my original assignment there, this 17 year long case was resolved, much of it having to do with the language used by this Unabomber person and the work I did with a team that I assembled to put it all together. 
So, and when you got there to San Francisco, obviously, you know, they wanted you to start looking at some of the Unabomber's writings, given your interest in language uh, and things like that. And so you began analyzing it and, you know, maybe, you know, started to put together your own profile, even though there was already kind of a profile in place that you didn't necessarily agree with. But at the time, what you were doing with language was new. And it seemed that your colleagues didn't really take what you were doing too seriously? Is that is that a correct analysis? Well, I'm going to back you up a little bit here. This may be the first time I mention to you and your listeners that even based on true event stories on TV or in the movies, they can have sort of fictitious parts to them. So let me just back up a little bit. And, and even the series presents this part correct. I was not a language expert by any means when I first got assigned to the uh, Unabom Task Force. Mm-hmm. I had a master's in organizational psychology from Villanova University and CAA champs this year. Yay. But besides hearing John Douglas you know, give a few lectures and some other people at the Academy on Statement Analysis, I, I was no more specialized in linguistics or text analysis or anything than anybody else. But a couple of things on the way out I put all the paperwork with me on my flight out to San Francisco, including copies of all the letters and the manifesto that the Unabomber had written so far. It was basically 13 letters. And then uh, the 14th document of the Unabom case was basically the manifesto. And I read all of those. And um, I actually put them down, took a break after like four and a half straight hours of reading, taking notes, highlighting things. And I went back to a um, only the second letter the Unabomber ever wrote, and that was in uh, 1985. It was what we called one of the first two ruse letters. There were only two ruse letters. And basically, it was a letter to a Professor McConnell there, and it was kind of a trick letter to get him to open up a package. And of course, there was a, uh, an explosive device inside. His uh, teaching assistant opened it. It blew up, and it severely injured him. Fortunately, he didn't die. But now I'm looking at this letter after all these years. And of course, the original was sent to the lab and evaluated and analyzed in every way possible. No fingerprints, no indented writing, no hairs and fibers, nothing. It was the early days of DNA. So that wasn't even available at that time. But here I looked at that second letter from 1985. And the the series did capture this correctly because I told the writer about it. And I saw down the left-hand column what I thought could possibly be a hidden message. And if you look down that left-hand column, anybody can go online today and look up the Dr. McConnell Unabom letter. And if you look down the left-hand column, it says, Dad, it is I. And I've always been an avid reader, and I tried to read some of the classics, including you know, uh, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland, and, and even the poem E.E. E. Cummings. And they like to have little word clues or hidden clues in their writing style, in their literature. So I found myself doing that with some of the Unabomber's letters, and I saw that. And really, I don't think it was the first day I was at the task force. They didn't really know exactly what to do with me as the profiler, who didn't really know too much more about the case. They just wanted a fresh set of eyes to look at everything they've done. And like by the second day, I tell the big boss, oh, yeah, by the way, what do you think of this hidden message in letter number two? And they said, what hidden message? Uh, Dad, it is I. Have you seen this? And I show him my copy. Let me see that. He puts his glasses on. And I've never seen this before. Did anybody ever see this before? No, this has been at the lab for 10 years. And he calls up headquarters and he calls up the the DOJ in Washington, D.C., Department of Justice, you know, the the head uh, prosecutor handling this case. This guy, Fitzgerald, this new profiler just came out, dad at his eye. Could it be something about his father? Could he have a father image? And they're asking me this at the same time. 
And, and that was captured in the miniseries. Uh, they, they did that relatively well. And from that point on, they basically said, Fitz, you seem to have a, a pretty good, uh, you know, spin or a, or a, or a skill set in, in looking at language. How about if we put you in charge of the document analysis? Hmm. Uh, okay, I guess. And basically from that point, that was my focus. I certainly was aware of other aspects of the case, what forensic evidence existed, what witnesses have been interviewed and re-interviewed and, and all these different research projects they were doing with the victims. Are they in any way connected? There were 16 victims at this point, three killed and a couple dozen uh, seriously injured, uh, all from the Unabomber. And I'm, I'm aware of everything going on. At any given time, a new suspect's name would come up. We would send surveillance teams out to follow him and do records checks and mail stops and all these things we were doing, but nothing ever came to anything of value. Now we had the manifesto. Of course, the, the Unabomber wanted it published, and he'd cease and desist from bombing for purposes of killing, but not for purposes of sabotage. Not many people remember that part. And lo and behold, we had the quandary, do we publish this thing or not? Yes, and I felt I find that very fascinating. And you were a, a big proponent for publishing his writings for the reason that ultimately led to his capture, and that was you you figured that somebody out there would recognize uh, his writings as or, and be able to identify him by his writings, um, and that's in fact you know what happened. So that was that was a good call, but that was a controversial call that they almost didn't publish the writings, right? Yeah, we really went back and forth, and I was invited into the UTF management uh, team. And uh, and unlike in the series, I actually got along with the people relatively well. We had some honest debates and disagreements, but that's what happens. But uh, it wasn't quite as uh, shown uh, the animosity, you know, in the series. But that that's okay. That's called dramatic license. But no, there were some people adamantly against publishing it, giving into the demands of a terrorist and and all those types of things. And I. I said, you know, we may be a little bit doing that, but I said, there is, this is such a treasure trove of vocabulary, lexicon, and, and just themes and topics. Someone, I figured it would be a teacher, a former professor, maybe, uh, maybe I, we, I know we threw out, you know, family members. Someone's going to recognize this writing style. No one is that isolated that they can't see this. They haven't seen something like this before. And a few people were, you know, with me, a few people were in the middle. And one or two on the task force said, no, I don't think we should do it. But I like to think cooler heads prevailed. And uh, we did eventually, that was just the first step. So the, the UTF management team agreed it should be published. Now we had to convince our director, Louis Free. Uh, he had to convince his boss, Janet Reno, the attorney general, that they had to go to the New York Times and say, here's what we want you to do. He's asked you to publish it. We think he'll stop killing the behavioral people, the profilers, the UTF people think that this is a smart move to identify him as well as he'll stop killing, would you consider publishing it? And they thought about it, thought about it. Then we actually asked, since the Unabomber said either the New York Times or the Washington Post could publish it, we went with the Washington Post. We requested the Washington Post because the New York Times was sold all over San Francisco. And we felt this guy would actually want a trophy or a souvenir of his document eventually being published. So the Washington Post agreed to sell it because there are only two stores. The, the miniseries has one. They did that to, you know, for cost-effect purposes, mm -hmm. but there are actually two stores. And yeah, we, we brought in surveillance teams from all over the Western U.S., FBI surveillance teams, to follow everybody who bought it. And I should add here, the task force was originally located, uh, the idea came forth and it was located in San Francisco, 
because after the Unabomber's six-year hiatus from 87 to 93, all his bombs and his letters were mailed from the San Francisco Bay Area. So we somehow felt that he lived within 100 miles of San Francisco. And I thought that too, uh, you know, 100, 200 miles, something like that. We were off by about a 1,000 miles <laughs> as the crow flies, but that's, you know, you're never going to be perfect in those things. So anyway, we watched everybody. They were lined up around the block that day. We followed everybody, copied tags down, did criminal checks, followed them on the BART system in San Francisco, the metro, buses, cars, planes, you name it. Uh, but not one person, uh, as the series accurately represents, no one was identified as having uh, purchased that souvenir or trophy copy, meaning it actually being the Unabomber. So uh, what we didn't know, that there was a woman in uh, Paris, France, at an academic conference who signed on to the brand new FBI.gov website. And there, for the first time ever, a request for help in a criminal case was put online on a website. She read it and said, hmm, this reads a lot like my brother-in-law, who I never met, who lives in Lincoln, Montana. I'll have to come home and tell my husband, David. And as anyone who watched the series or read my book knows, that was the big break we were looking for. That was huge. And so I have some questions surrounding that, but I want to go back just a little bit, if you don't mind. And um, so you, from Ted Kaczynski's writings, you were able to build a profile uh, for the Unabomber. And so can you go over what that profile was? I'm sure some people know, but, you know, just kind of like eight, how, how old you thought he was and certain characteristics about him. Yeah. And I, when I first went there, I certainly deferred to, I think uh, John Douglas had written three or four, actually may have been five profiles already from like 82 through 85, 87, then one or two more after the Unabomber's hiatus. And I should add for your listeners, in 1987, the Unabomber for the first time was spotted outside a computer store, and that's uh, by one of the uh, employees, and that's when the famous um, and iconic composite sketch came up, uh, came about uh, with the guy with the hoodie and the uh, aviator sunglasses, and it obviously scared the Unabomber enough once he saw that sketch in the media that he took six years off. Of course, we wondered, or other people were wondering, not so much me, I wasn't involved in the case, but you know, was he killed? Was he blown up by one of his own devices? Was he arrested and put in jail for something else? Did he get married, have kids, new job, whatever? But he came back with a vengeance in 93, and uh, the letters started arriving, the manifesto. And lo and behold, I started reading these, and I started updating John uh, Douglas's profile. And I didn't do this by myself. There was at least one person on the task force with a psychological background and, and she was helping me somewhat with that. And I was also in touch with the profilers, the, the experienced profilers uh, back in Quantico, uh, even though John Douglas had retired at that point. And um, there was one letter, actually, that the Unabomber wrote to a Dr. Galentner. Uh, Galentner first received a bomb from the Unabomber, almost blew off his uh, arm, and he lost some fingers over it. But it, luckily, he survived. And then a, a while later, he receives a letter in the mail, kind of figuratively rubbing uh, salt in the wounds there of this poor computer scientist at Yale. And um, it was in that letter that for the first time it hit me, we were saying that this guy, you know, maybe his education was high school, maybe he was he didn't get into grad school, uh, and he was frustrated, you know, maybe ABD, meaning all but dissertation. There was some, you know, debate going back and forth, his actual level of education. But on the top of the letter to Dr. Galerner, the very first sentence is, in so many words, I guess people without advanced degrees 
don't count. And I read that and I said, but that's interesting. By reading that, and it, you know, it's a whole letter, maybe about 200 words to it. And I'm reading it saying, in a way, he's giving a clue here, even with the negated version of that sentence, I guess people without advanced degrees don't count, that he's almost telling us that he doesn't have an advanced degree. And then about six sentences later, he writes essentially a, a very similar sentence. You know, apparently people without college degrees, you know, aren't important or something like that. So now he doesn't even have a, not only doesn't he not have an advanced degree, he doesn't have a college degree. He's sort of telling us this in negated form. And he's also the same guy that's leaving no clues whatsoever on his devices, no fingerprints, DNA. We've been through all this. I said, this guy's lying. He has an advanced degree, of course, which means he has a college degree. And this is really forensic countermeasures he's using. A counter indicator, I actually came up with that term, against the truth. And that's when we changed the profile around. We made him older. And we realized that, you know, the University of Chicago was his first bombing in 78. And a lot of people thought, justifiably so, it was a college student back then, 20, 22 years of age. But here, the real Ted Kaczynski already had his PhD in mathematics. He skipped a few classes along the way. And here he was in 1978, you know, in his late 30s and, and already, I'm sorry, in his late 20s at that point, you know, already knew what he was doing in that regard. So that threw the age off a little bit. And then we started tying in some other things to him. And yes, we did change the profile as it was getting closer. And again, I wish I could tell you that I said he lived in a cabin in the woods, but we knew this guy was a loner. We knew this guy, if he had family or friends, whatever, uh, you know, he had a, a separate garage or shed or even a chest of some sort that was under lock and key. Nobody was allowed to get into it. And uh, and that turned out, of course, you know, to be right there. And would even think he had, if he had a job, he wasn't dealing with the public. He's not a car salesman or something like that. This guy is back in a cubicle somewhere counting widgets or whatever he was doing. But of course, he was a professor for a few years when we finally identified the person. But that just didn't work for him. And he decided to retreat into the woods and that's where he lived uh, most of his adult life. So, and going back to kind of, you know, Ted's basically like social, he, he wasn't, like you said, he wasn't a social guy. He was a loner. Looks like he had some issues with his parents and a, a, a relationship with his brother, albeit seemed somewhat strained. I had seen on the TV show, and I don't know if this is true, that Ted may have had some sexual identity issues. And it was said that, you know, he, he was a virgin his entire life. Do you know that to be true? Uh, you've obviously uh, studied Ted Kaczynski very well, Jamie, but that is absolutely true. While at the University of Michigan, we know because when we finally arrested Kaczynski and had access to his cabin, we found his diary, his autobiography, his journal, all these things. And he would he wrote very much so about his early life. And it turns out while at the University of Michigan, for some reason, he was having a sexual identity crisis. And he thought at some point that he would want to be a woman. And he just walked into the made an appointment. I don't know how he did this. He'd walked into the campus psychology office or psychologist office and sat down with the shrink and said, uh, yeah, I want to be a woman. And he was shocked and taken aback that he they wouldn't give him the surgery the next day or even the next year that he would have to go through therapy. He'd have to go through medication. And maybe in back then, I'm not even sure, four to six years, they would consider the surgery if everything was okay in that regard. Well, he got very upset, as he wrote to himself, and he uh, just stormed out of the psychologist's office, and he claims it was that day that walking down the steps of this building at the campus of the 
University of Michigan, he decided instead of becoming a woman, he wants to start killing people. And he's going to come up with an idea of how to kill people like him, other people in business in the world that he doesn't relate to or doesn't respect. And uh, it took him uh, maybe 15, trying to think the time frame there, maybe about 10 years. But finally, in 1978, he, um, he started killing people, or at least trying to. Wow, that is... And yes, he was a virgin, not to interrupt you, but to answer your... He was a virgin his whole life. He wrote about that. Uh, they captured the scene very well in the miniseries, which actually happened. I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Fitz. I could talk to him forever. Just when you think you've learned everything there is to know about one of the world's most infamous serial killers, you talk to Fitz and you learn just how complicated of a person Ted Kaczynski is. There's more where that came from. Join me for part two of the interview with Fitz, which has already been released. Fitz and I get into more fascinating true crime talk and discuss what may have been Kaczynski's only encounter with a woman. And of course, we discuss the conclusion of Ted Kaczynski's 17-year reign of terror. Thank you all for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm looking forward to seeing you all again very soon. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't be shy. Tell a friend. The word of mouth is powerful. You can follow the podcast on social media, on Twitter at Murderish Pod, and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. I have a closed group set up for us to discuss all things Murderish. If you'd like to take your support for the podcast a step further, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash murderish. If you choose to become a patron, you'll get some extra perks in exchange. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash murderish. Murderish merchandise is also available at two online stores. Links to the online stores are available in show notes and in the about section of the Murderish podcast Facebook group. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. What is your name? Stevie. Who's your mom? Jamie. And do you like podcasts? Yes. What's your favorite podcast? Um, Vacuum Podcast. No, there's no podcast called Vacuum Podcast. What's your favorite podcast? Murderous Podcast. Oh. Oh, yeah. I didn't know you were going to say that. That's pretty cool. So Murderous Podcast is your favorite? Yeah. Do you go to school? Yes, always. Always? Yeah. What are you going to do today? Um, Have a good, great day. Oh, that's a great plan. Yeah. Who's your favorite, mommy or daddy? Um, mama and you. Oh, that means I'm your favorite because you said mama and you. And daddy. Oh, okay. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Yes. What are their names? Skylar. Um, Drew, Drew. Okay. Stevie, who's your favorite serial killer, Ted Bundy or the Zodiac? Zodiac. Oh, okay, yeah. And Bud Dundee. Oh, Bud Dundee? Yeah. Okay. And microphone. <laughs>
And they like teeth too and eyeballs. <laughs> Scary haunted eyeballs. Scary haunted eyeballs? I don't even like toes. You like toes? <laughs> yeah. With toe jam? Yeah. The more jam, the better. Yeah, I like the noses inside your nose. <laughs> cool. I like boogers. Oh, you like boogers. Okay. <laughs> That's great. How old are you? Four years old. Great. Okay, honey, we're going to wrap up this interview. It's been so nice talking to you. Would you like to say anything else to the Murderish Podcast listeners? Yeah, Murderish Podcast is the best. Boom.